Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 75 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with big name interview shows every Monday, just like this one, and short four or five minute daily episodes released Tuesday through Sunday on a show I call This Day Rocks. If this is your first time listening, please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day and you'll only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So give it a like or subscribe separately on there too, please. Now, today's guest is someone I've been trying to get on the show for ages. I checked back the email trail and I first reached out on the 13th of October 2021. So literally just over a year it took to get him on the show. Now, he may not be a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer or even a mainstream household name, but he has been a pioneer throughout his career. Now, I love this quote from music journalist Tim Sommer, who wrote an article in LA Weekly in 2017, where the opening paragraph read, In the mid and late 1980s, you couldn't throw a drink ticket in LA without hitting a group that were created in this one band's image. The whole platinum, spiky and rouged middle of the decade looked like them. From the singers with the serpentine hips, to the skipping, swirling guitar players wearing attitudinal hats, to the two cool, vested rhythm guitarists, it all had its roots in Hanoi Rocks. Now, Hanoi Rocks are a band from Finland who broke out of there and changed the world in their own way. They were the first Finnish group to chart in the UK. They set the tone and many acknowledge they set the blueprint for the look of the hair metal scene. The classic lineup is considered Michael Monroe on vocals, Andy McCoy lead guitar and principal songwriter, Nasty Suicide on rhythm guitar, Sammy Yaffa on the bass, and the drums first by Jip Casino and then by Razzle. Their music, though, it's, it's hard to define. I know we said the whole hair metal thing, but it was raw, it was edgy, it was spiky, it was fast, and yet very melodic, incredibly so, catchy choruses and sing-along hooks. Their live performances are legendary. I went down a rabbit hole of YouTube watching so many of their live performances, and the energy that came off the stage in the 80s was incredible. I definitely urge you to check them out. Sounds Magazine in the UK even voted them the second best band in the world at one point. The Manic Street Preachers, Skid Row and Foo Fighters have all publicly acknowledged being Hanoi Rocks fans. Brett Michaels and NoFX have both mentioned Hanoi Rocks in songs of theirs. And even the new big TV show Peacemaker, the character himself, says Hanoi Rocks, only the greatest band of all time. But, despite their influence, despite their love, the cult status... They never got the wider commercial success they deserved, mainly in part due to the tragic circumstances which led to the band breaking up in the mid-80s. On their first tour of the US in 1984, the group's drummer, Razzle, was at a party at Motley Cruising and Vince Neil's house. Razzle got in the car with Vince to go find more alcohol. Vince hit another car. Razzle died instantly. The occupants of the other car suffered serious injuries and Vince was sentenced to 30 days in prison. Now, prior to this, the band had, just months earlier, released Two Steps From The Move, a brilliant album produced by legendary music producer Bob Ezrin. This album would have been the big breakthrough, if you ask me. In fact, this was the album that got a 16-year-old me into Hanoi Rocks. I was working in a bar at the time, too young to serve alcohol, of course, but I was there to collect empty glasses, wash them, stack the shelves in the bar, that sort of thing, but also help out in the kitchen when the food orders got busy. Now, in the kitchen, the head chef would always play some sort of crazy rock, and one day I was working there, I remember him asking me if I'd ever heard of a band called Hanoi Rocks. No, I said. So he put on two steps from the move, and that was me hooked. So, as a big fan, you can imagine my delight when I finally secured an interview with the band's charismatic lead singer, an icon in Finland, a man who's just turned 60, Michael Munro. But, before we hear my chat with him, I'm going to flip the show on its head this week because I want to make sure that anyone not aware of the group gets a chance to hear some snippets first. So today, I'm going to start with the top fives, and I really enjoyed listening again to the band's back catalogue, and re-immersing myself with their stuff as well. I mean, it's criminally underrated, and well, perhaps that's not even the right word. I mean, criminally underexposed. Maybe that's better. So here you go. For anyone that loves the band, be kind. For anyone unaware of the band, take these five as a starting point. So here you go. My top five songs from Hanoi Rocks. 
At five is a track from the Two Steps from the Move album. Songwriter credits on this are Andy McCoy, Bob Ezrin and the legend that is Ian Hunter. A big chant-along chorus, a fan's favourite. At five is Boulevard of Broken Dreams. At four is a track from their 1983 album Back to Mystery City. Originally, McCoy didn't like the song he'd written, but Razzle loved it, so the band went with it, and Andy grew to love it. At four is Until I Get You. My number three is the opening track on 1982's Oriental Beat album. Another really upbeat number. It drips with raucous energy when it's done live. And number three is Motivating. Now, my number one and two flipped so many times before I had to commit, and right now the song I've picked at two is another from the Two Steps from the Move album. It shifts in tempo and feel throughout the song. The intro and build-up is moody, and as long-time listeners know, I like a dark and brooding track, but it cuts in with a swagger-filled verse full of attitude, and then the melodic big sing-along chorus. And speaking of the chorus, Guns N' Roses took the line Welcome to the Jungle from this chorus to make a, a little song for themselves. And number two is Underwater World. And at number one, I've gone for a track from their debut album, Bangkok Rocks, Shanghai Shakes, Hanoi Rocks. It's punky and full of fire and has all the ingredients of a Hanoi classic. Andy wrote this when he was just 15 or 16 years old, which is incredible. And given what happened with Razzle and the band, the title becomes even more poignant. My favourite song and number one on my list of Hanoi Rocks tracks is Tragedy. Life is like tragedy. So there you go, my top five songs from Hanoi Rocks. Hopefully that gives you a good idea of the group going into this interview with Michael. As always, though, I'd love to hear your thoughts on my top five. Email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or you can find me on the social media channels. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all the usual sites, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing. You'll find me on them. Let me know what your top five picks are. Let you know what you think of my selection as well. Come say hello, and you'll get a mention on next Monday's big interview show. Speaking of interviews, let's get on to it then. Here we go with Michael. He's a wonderful guest. He was at home in Finland when we spoke and he's just returned from New York. He spent much of the summer touring and opening for Guns N' Roses and Alice Cooper across Europe. So you're going to get to hear all about that. He's so busy as well. You get to hear the full lowdown on his new movie, his latest album, the re-release of another album, a finally remastered version of a Hanoi classic. He talks about Razzle, the band, Slash, Axl Rose, Alice Cooper, working with the legend that is Bob Ezrin and so much more. Please enjoy this extended interview with the wonderful Michael Munro. So I saw recently on your social media that you're over in New York and you'd met with Stephen Van Zandt and Ian Hunter, I mean two legends, and you were there because you were filming more parts for your new movie, a new documentary. So let's start with that then. I mean, tell us about meeting those legends and, and what you were doing there and a bit more about this movie, this documentary about your life. Yeah, well, it's a documentary that's been in the works for over two years now. I've been filming it. Uh, it's a story about my life, my career, and uh, from the beginning uh, to this day. And uh, a lot of stuff has happened, actually, during the filming. And uh, that's really interesting. It's called. It's going to be called um, The Best Kept Secret in Rock and Roll. And, <clears throat> and uh, it's going to be an interesting movie to anybody who's maybe not even into rock and roll or, or me. Uh, it'll be an interesting story. And uh, we've had um, a lot of stuff happen uh, in the process. Uh, There's some really moving scenes, too, uh, that have happened. Uh, me speaking with my mother about remembering Razzle, and uh, she 
got all moved and uh, she was re- she remembers him coming to visit us a couple of times and then uh the hanoi rocks second album oriental beat the the remixing of that that whole process was documented because um the tapes are were thought to have been lost and i yes, really that's right yeah, yeah. So, we have now remixed in uh Four years later, the album finally gets the sound it deserves. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, the re- remastering and reissue of Demolition 23 and uh, my newest album. And, and uh, we filmed some stuff on tour. We were opening for Alice Cooper in June. And uh, we had a cool chat with Alice in, uh, in his hotel room in Milan, which we filmed. Uh, I basically let Alice talk as he has such cool stories from the, from the early days. And, uh, and uh, we've interviewed tons of people from uh, Bob Ezrin to, uh, you know, Slash, of course, and uh, Chris Schiffert. Uh, Joe Elliott's going to be in. Uh, yeah. Tons of people from my from my life. And, uh, of course, little Steven had to be. He was one of the most important, uh, you know, he's uh, been a really dear friend for, for many years and all my years in America, especially. And Ian Hunter, of course, uh, always been a big hero and. uh you know, we went to his house in Connecticut and had a great, great talk. Nice. Great. Uh, and uh, all the people that have been a uh, part of my life uh, from the beginning. Uh, there's so much great material. It's going to be tough to uh, leave stuff out and <laughs> to make it into a, a movie. Uh, but it'll it'll be something else. I'm looking forward to it being finished. It's supposed to come out now, the end of uh, January next year, 2023. Ah. So not too long for us to wait then. I mean, what other footage is in there? Have you got kind of previously unseen footage, some of the old stuff? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. Pete Eklund is a guy who's been making it. He's, he's done a huge amount of research and, and interviewed tons of people and gone through tons of material throughout the years and uh, really has done a thorough job going through uh, my life. And uh, it, it's, it's really, a, it's got a great vision. And uh, I had to like, go over, rethink a lot of the old events, like, like for example, uh, did I make the right decision by telling them to pull the commercial uh, when they were <laughs> at the, Michael Monroe, the brains behind Hanoi Rocks? He found that advert, advert somewhere, the wow. TV ad, and I was like, well, it is corny. It's corny. And uh, if I'd known that they were going to pull the plug on the whole record, uh, I might have, you know, just let it be. But then again, I would have had to live with it. So uh, <laughs> I made the right decision in the end. But it's like things are, you know, situation where I have to really like, I mean, there's many real, real situations where as it happens, I have to like, he hasn't made it easy on me, which is good. So, uh, and, and we had uh, also interviewing Andy McCoy, who I had nothing to do with for 12 years. And uh, Andy was in uh, really uh, uh, in a space at the time in, in his state of mind. He was really um, open and uh, looking at himself too, like admitting that he he'd been a prick for many, in many, many times. It's been uh, many years that he'd been really uh, kind of like owned up on a lot of stuff and he actually called me the next day after the interview to to, to apologize oh, wow. for, for being a for it's like that's the first ever i was like wow where did this come from i was like well of course i um, you know accept uh, except it's hard to hard to forget some of the stuff is like well, the worst you know it was such mm-hmm. a nightmare at times but still it's like wow this is improvement and, but you know things like that it, it making the movie has sparked a lot of stuff and, and uh, caused a lot of things. And it, it, uh, I'm sure it has had something to do with the fact that we got the, the original lineup of Hanoi Rocks uh, at my 60th birthday show, got that together and all that's been documented too. So uh, it's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, it's, there's been like a lot of closures and, and stuff that, that, that have happened uh, during the filming of it. So uh, it's very exciting and it's a perfect, perfect time. The, the timing has been perfect. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm really glad that uh, Pete is making that documentary, and he's doing a great job. So I'm looking forward to it myself. I'm really looking forward to it. it. Sounds fascinating. It sounds like it's healing some old wounds as well, which is always lovely to hear, especially at this stage of life. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Now being sixty is like, well, the new album "Live Too Fast to Die Young." Uh, uh, it says it all, and uh, I can't die young anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you've got a huge following here in the, in the UK. Obviously, we'll start with that, but with the likes of Hanoi Rocks, they were huge. I mean, the, the, Hanoi was the first Finnish band to have a charting success over here in the UK and get on the charts. And it was it was incredible. You spent a lot of time here. You record records here. 
What did yeah, you make of your time in London, in, in, in the UK? Because you toured as well all over the UK. I mean, what did you make of your time here in the music scene at that point in, in, in the early 80s? Well, it was a great time. Uh, it was a lot of learning and uh, I was, you know, just in the beginning and uh, we relocated to London. And after after we started out on the streets of Stockholm, I mean, we, first thing we wanted to do was get out of Finland and out of Helsinki. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in Stockholm, we, me and Nasty, Nasty Suicide and Sammy Alpha, we were on the streets homeless for the first six months. Andy wasn't because he had a girlfriend. <laughs> but uh, then we relocated to London eventually in like 81, 82 and <clears throat> lived there. And uh, it was, I loved living in London and we, there, there was no, not much of a scene there. So we kind of, it was us and the Lost of a New Church was another band that was like happening there uh, in the early 80s. And we, we kind of created a scene at the, playing at the, we, were, we had a residency at the Marquis. We played once a week and everybody came to see Hanoi. All, all from, from hippies to heavy metal, uh, to teddy boys, to even skinheads, anybody, you know, we, we combined and punks and everybody. So we, com- uh, we crossed all the barriers, yeah. crossed over to a multitude of people and from different walks of life, which was great. Yeah. And I thought that was also one of the best things about Hanoi that we defied all categories that, you know, they tried to call us heavy metal or, or punk and then they came up with the glam thing. And it was like, well, whatever you call it, it's rock and roll. And uh, we, you know, we played anything from punk to calypso. So (laughs) couldn't really uh, pin us down and say what we were. But uh, we were a good rock band and had our own thing. And uh, uh, we became like, after Russell joined, especially, he had a great sense of humor and uh, the English kind of sense of humor. And and we we became the darlings of the press. Uh, All the Melody Maker articles from New York to Israel and India. Yeah. Uh, chewing up the Big Apple and Havoc in the Holy Land and what was it? <laughs> with Carol Clark, God rest her soul, Carol Clark was wonderful and, and Justin Thomas, a photographer. Justin's actually my, Pete Eklund, Pete, the maker of, maker of my documentary, he flew Justin Thomas over to my, my uh, 60th birthday concert. Oh, he was over there. Beautiful. So uh, <clears throat> it was a great time and, uh, and, and we, everybody loved Hanoi and we were on our way to becoming, you know, becoming a big, Band and uh, surely, uh, except Enemy was the only magazine that hated everybody. <laughs> they, they had a hard time, but uh, it was um, it was a cool time and uh, it was a cool scene back then. And uh, but uh, and then uh, after that, uh, London became kind of sad, you know, uh, for me. And recovering from that, from losing a dear friend like Russell and such a great guy, uh, it was really a hard time and. Uh, we really probably should have taken a break, but we couldn't. And uh, I guess, or at least uh, we were th- told, that, you know, we should keep going. And uh, mm-hmm. Sammy Alpha left the band, which also made, made it, you know, hard to continue. And so there was only me and Andy and Nasty left, and we weren't really connecting at the time. And yeah. so um, I, uh, I was, my, my only friend I felt was uh, Steve Baders at the time. And uh, we were, you know, really tight. And uh, he was, uh, when he was on tour, I was taking care of his cat. His cat Ziggy, uh, <laughs> we decided to move in together because he had a cool flat in, in Portobello. So uh, uh, that was that summer, even though, uh, regardless of the Hanoi tragedy and losing the, my band, the band of my life, I didn't know what to do. I just wanted to stop Hanoi from becoming something that, that it wasn't because mm-hmm. had we continued with the replacement for, for, uh, and for Russell and Sammy, it wouldn't have been the same. Yeah. So I didn't want the world to get to know Hanoi as it, the way it was not. Like I, you know, the original band was so special, like a family and yeah, street. absolutely. Then little Stephen came over to produce the Lord's uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, song single, and yeah. uh, then I, I had been a fan of Stevens since the Voice of America album was a big thing for me. So uh, uh, I met him, and I thought, you know, these are the two coolest people, and you know, <laughs> the only people I need to hang with, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Stephen came. Uh, he, he had never heard of Hanoi, and he uh, he actually uh, Steve showed him a video of uh, Hanoi. Uh, I think it was Boulevard uh, Broken Dreams, and yeah. Stephen flipped over it. He was like, "Wow, this is what, <laughs> understandable." <great."> yeah. <laughs> so so then uh, I said, "Well, you know, unfortunately, we broke up, and uh, the drummer died, and all." So then Stephen was from then on. Stephen, you know, wanted to support my solo career, and uh, he came to play some guitar, some twelve string guitar on. Uh, my demos that I was making at the time. 
and sang some backing vocals. And then he invited me and Steve to be part of the Sun City project. The Sun City oh, nice. project. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that was like the song that made everyone aware of what was going on in South Africa. South Africa. And no bands could go and play the holiday resorts and make millions uh, pretending, that they, pretending that they didn't know what was going mm-hmm. on. Apartheid and Mandela was in jail and all that. So I was really proud to be part of that. I sang some backing vocals with Steve and then uh, Steve and Flores, we flew over to London, uh, to, uh, to New York to uh, make the video. We'd be a part of the Sun City video. And uh, that was really cool. This, the, the group scene in uh, Washington Square Park with, uh, you know, everybody from Bob Dylan to Bono and uh, Bob Geldof and Bruce Springsteen and Miles Davis even played on the song. It's like uh, Joe Ramon and Run DMC and uh, uh, all these cool people, cool, some of the coolest and biggest names in rock, uh, Ringo Starr, Zach Starkey, Keith Richards, Ronnie Wood, Pete Townsend. It's like, this This is where I belong. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to move here and I want to just restart. Living the dream. Absolutely. Yeah. Start over in New York, you know, start yeah. my solo career. Because Steve was the one. I said, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I said, well, start a solo career. I said, well, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I started, like, I came onto my own as a songwriter. Because I always, Hanoi Andy, Andy had some great stuff always. And he always said, oh, I got a better one here. So I kind of let him write songs. And uh, uh, I didn't, you know, write much myself. But then... Mm. On my during my solo career, I, I came onto my own as a songwriter, and uh, based on my admiration on of uh, of Steve and Little Stevens and Voice of America, Lords of Miniatures, and Steve, and then the punk thing, uh, telling the truth, making, writing relevant lyrics and lyrics that meant something and could move people and maybe raise questions. And you know, uh, Steve always thought that. Uh, the lyrics the deadliest weapon or tools for positive action so it was just yeah. as important as the music and uh, so uh, I started working on my solo career in New York restarted my life and uh, that's how that came about but, but London it wasn't it, those years were important you know really uh, and we were learning all the time and we had a created a big buzz there and uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And we were the first band ever to come out to leave Finland because people, Finnish people are kind of uh, they're humble by birth. Uh, I think for some, the Finnish character usually is very like, you know, I'm nothing. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, why bother? And, uh, you know, let's go to the big world that uh, they can have it. And I don't even speak the language. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we were, we thought, like, of course, we want to be, you know, we're, first thing we wanted to do is get out of Finland. And uh, and uh, we opened a lot of doors uh, afterwards, you know, for bands like I could hear a, uh, that's like uh, him, you know, yes. uh, and then uh, Rasmus. And the, before Hanoi, no, it didn't occur to people that here artists that they could leave the country. And we just thought, it, you know, didn't think it was possible. So, so that, but Hanoi, uh, I think uh, me and Hanoi, uh, exceptionally, we've left, left our mark, you know. Absolutely. You were, you were pioneers without a shadow of a doubt in, in many different aspects and many different realms. But uh, I just want to take you back quickly to something you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago about the the re, uh, remixing, remaking of uh, the Oriental Beat album, which was recorded in London. Um, yeah. You weren't happy with the album as it came out of the time. I mean, it's gone down. Fans love it. Uh, but it never sat right with you or the band, did it? So tell us what you're doing with it now. No, uh, well, the way it was mixed, uh, the producer uh, uh, at the time, he, I don't know what he was going for, but it was something just totally wrong. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, it just, uh, we, we had heard, we had some tapes of some rough mixes at the time and we thought it was going to be fine. So we were already on tour in Finland uh, at the time when we heard the record, the mix for the first time, and it was already pressed onto vinyl. Uh, (laughs) So it can't be changed. And I thought it sounds kind of hollow and, you know, it's pretty much like just snare drum and vocal and there's no guitar band and it was like no guitars. And Mm -hmm. it was really a strange mix. And, uh, but we thought, you know, it couldn't be changed. And, had I known what I know now, of course, we would have, you know, went back and said, no, screw this. So let's start over. We're going to mix it again. But uh, that's the way it was put out. And uh, it's a shame because I think that probably set us back for a, for a year or two, maybe because uh, of the sound of the record. Because it had great songs, but the sound was really, really bad. Uh, in, a, in the worst possible way, it was screwed up. <laughs> so, but uh, still, uh, we, were, we wanted to remix it in uh, the early 90s when Guns N' Roses released, released our um, uh, European catalog in, in the States. Uh, they, uh, we wanted to remix that record. And then the Finnish label said, 
the, the head of Finnish label said that he has, they sent the multi-track tapes to Germany for someone to mix, to remix. And uh, they had, the tapes had been lost. And we're like, what? How can I send the original tapes? I didn't have safety copies. And uh, as it turned out, I found out a couple of years ago that it was done. It was not true that the, the original tapes were always in Finland and mm -hmm. Universal Music owns them now. So I had a tip from somebody who had been at their uh, warehouse and had seen some multi-track tapes of by Hanoi. And I, I so I, I got in touch with the, the head of the label and I says, can you please have somebody go out there and take take a photo of the tapes? And if it says at Vision Studios, London, then those are the Oriental Beat tapes. And they were. So we're like, wow, now we can make it, really remix it finally. And uh, so we started doing it. We went into, we had uh, this guy, East, East Studio uh, in, in Helsinki, this guy, um, Petri Myri, who's, who's done my previous album, previous four albums, except for the, uh, who's, he's mixed up, uh, all my previous albums, except for the new one. Yeah. Uh, and he, he's, I've worked with him for many years. And uh, so uh, he started working on the stuff. And then me and me and Sammy went into the studio for uh, <clears throat> a couple of times. And uh, it's, it was sounding really great. And then Andy, uh, of course, wanted to have his say. And uh, so I, I called him uh, and we met for the first time for 12 years. <laughs> Hadn't seen him since the rebirth of Hanoi. Yeah. Uh, in 2009, when we finished that, I had no reason to be in touch with him. And, uh, 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 well, yeah, I must say, at the time, I, I decided that I never want to see that guy again. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, now I, I called him and I said, okay, look, uh, whatever your problem is, let's get to this. Let's go to the studio and uh, you tell me what you want. And then we'll, you know, we'll have it. I mean, you know, it would be silly if we can uh, yeah. cooperate. And, uh, and it was such an important thing. And uh, mm -hmm. the longest project ever for an album, 40 years. And uh, <laughs> finally now, it has the sound it deserves. So, And Andy actually did have good points for it. And then uh, we uh, uh, sent the left, the, that version to everybody. I mean, Jip Casino, Sammy, Sammy Afa, and Nasty Suicide, everybody was involved in this process all the time. Yeah. We yeah. sent the versions to be heard, and everybody said their comments, and uh, everybody liked them, and, and even Richard Bishop, the uh, other manager, you know. And uh, we finally got the uh, uh, result that we were all happy with, and uh, now it's coming out in uh, November. I think it's able, available to order already. This is the 40th anniversary year, so uh, it's uh, uh, we made it so that it's going to be. It's the 40th anniversary, 21st century edition, the, the real mix, not only the, the real mix. That's real the one. Mix. That's the one. Brilliant! Can't wait to hear that as well. I mean, um, let's find another name that you've already mentioned, Bob Ezrin. I mean, he came over. He watched you guys play. I mean, this is a guy that worked on the wall with Pink Floyd. He'd worked with Alice Cooper on many albums and Kiss and I don't know Aerosmith and Lou Reed and Peter Gabriel. I mean, honestly, he'd worked with some huge superstars. Now, what was your feeling when you found out that he wanted to work with you guys and he wanted to take you over to New York to record? And I mean, how must have that felt at the time? I thought it was brilliant. I was. I mean, he was like holy you know <laughs> he's a holy man and he had done all the earlier alice cooper albums they're like my absolute favorites i was like yeah. so happy that i know steve wanted to have him produce the lost of the new church and i asked him why he didn't produce that the name was too long <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he was into producing hanoi and I, I we really needed that at the time i think it was uh he felt about hanoi like um like uh, he kind of felt the same as he felt about the Alice, Alice Cooper band. It, uh, it, it was going to be a longer relationship. We, we were planning to make the next album with him and the yeah. next one too. And it would have been a great relationship. So uh, he, uh, yeah, he came to see our gig and uh, then he wanted to meet me. Uh, he was staying with uh, uh, David Gilmore, Gilmore's house oh, yes, in Maida yeah. Vale. Yeah. And they were working on the About Face album, which is actually a great record. It's one of my favorites to, uh, so uh, he was at Gilmore's house. Gilmore wasn't home, but I, it was one of his three houses, I think, and it was a cool place. <laughs> so uh, Andy was kind of uh, agitated. He was like, why does he want to meet you? I, I write most of the songs. And he was like, well, I don't know. I mean, he's seen our show. So uh, Bob just wanted to talk to me about the, what he saw on stage. And uh, for me, he, he had some good tips about, you know, how he had you know, like some moves like uh, what I do with my hands if I... If I get people to clap and then I do something else, it's confusing to them. I just give them time and then, you know, put my hands down so people, because they follow your hands and build tips like that. And he said, how many times did you get up on a PA? And I said, 
I don't know, maybe, maybe one, maybe two, twice, three times. I counted seven. <laughs> I said, yeah, so? He says, well, you know, you go up there once, people go, yeah, wow. And the second time maybe, but after that, you lose the impact. So you said, you don't want to do it too much. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. You know, mm-hmm. so things like that he wanted to talk to me about. And he also wanted to talk about Andy. He says, there's one guy, it's a difficult case, but he reminds me of Glenn Buxton, the Alice Cooper band, but uh, I can handle him. Uh, you know, well, you mean Andy? Just, yep. <laughs> so, so uh, he was, uh, but he dealt with Andy. Well, you know, he had his peculiar sides and uh, uh, he was really good with him in, in the studio. And I remember Andy being pissy about stuff like, I can make him play that solo over and over again. Then he combines. I don't like the way he combined it. It was like, but he was still, it was still okay. You know? And uh, even uh, at the end of the, Recording session, I mean, I, we learned, it was like a learning experience. We, I learned a hell of a lot. We all learned. That's when we all became professionals, so to speak, mm-hmm. with, with Bob. And uh, he, he ran a tight ship, but he had a great sense of humor. And uh, it, was, it was really, I had a good time too. And I was really skinny at the time. I mean, I, uh, you know, came to a point where I, I stopped everything, what I've been doing, whatever, you know, speed and hash and smoking and stuff. And, I decided, I realized that singing, because Bob maybe takes vocal lessons, and I realized it's, it's very physical, singing and, and performing on stage, uh, that the better shape I'm in, the better I do it. So yeah, I decided to quit everything. I'm drinking, I never liked anyways, but I just decided to start exercising and being healthy and good shape. And, and I didn't know how to eat to balance that. So I, I got really skinny. I was, <laughs> I was like really skin and bone. And people thought, what are you doing, speed or something? You got, you're going you're so skinny. I was like, no, no, I've never been healthier in my life, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, uh, and I started swimming every day and whenever I could. And, uh, and then uh, even Bob was saying, come on, have a donut. Come on, you need to put on the plate before you go on the road. You know, you, you can't look like that. But uh, I was still, you know, I, I guess uh, without knowing, I guess I had some kind of liquid diet, I guess. Because I was, you know, I would get up, I'd go run to the swim, swimming pool, swim for an hour or two maybe, and then, then have some muesli or... And then some salad for, for dinner and yogurt, and that's all, you know. And so I put on my weight. But uh, it was uh, maybe it was, I guess I was anorexic in a way, a little bit too. And, and maybe it was my way of saying, you know, up yours to everybody. <laughs> What's this? I'm skinnier, skinnier than Andy, even though Andy was skinny. He never had the muscle tone because he didn't. It's the only exercise he did, you know. But but uh, it, was, it was really a learning experience. And we, we did the. Uh, pre-production in, in at first we did some in London and then in uh, Toronto and then we recorded the basic tracks in the, at the record plant in yep. in York and then uh, went back to Toronto to finish the album and uh, it was great because it was at the, in the studio building there also there was a swimming swimming pool there so I went to swim <laughs> and like, the guys they almost resented me for not drinking twenty four hours like they did. <laughs> You know, there's, there was a there was a, a fire alarm at the hotel in Toronto. It was like we were it was a high rise building and like many uh, seventy floors or something. And then I've heard a fire alarm and I had, I was like I was I was in the bath and I was like you know my hair was wet and I was put, put on my jeans and t shirt and went outside and freezing. It was a cold winter and and then uh, there actually was a fire in the kitchen, but then they got it under control. So everybody went back into the building. But I was like. Wait a minute. Where did the guys go? <laughs> what happened with them? I, and I went to knock on whoever's room it was. They were all in the same room. They didn't give a shit. <laughs> they were like drinking the same. I was like, bang the door. You guys realize there was a fire fire uh, emergency just now? Said, oh, come on, lighten up. What are you worried about? Come on, chill, chill man. Take a, have a drink. <laughs> okay, whatever. They, they, were sitting there. they didn't give a give a hoot. <laughs> they just kept on partying. But uh, yeah, so that was a really, really great experience with Bob. And, uh, and Bob was really upset when, when Russell died. He was uh, really, really upset about that. He was, he was angry and he was mad. He was like, God damn it, why did that happen? And Because he really wanted to work with us and uh, we would have worked with him in the future. And he taught me how to, you know, uh, this warm up thing with my yeah. boy. How to, I, when I was husky and before the vocal of uh, Full of Our Broken Dreams, I, I said, you know, my voice is shot and I feel like shit. And I just, he said, hey, come on, man. Okay, come here, come here, do this. And he showed me this kind of exercise where you massage your vocal cords and uh, you sing in a low key, uh, low, low tone, uh, you know, for a while softly. And, uh, and then you get your voice back and he says, okay, sing like that for an hour. We've gone out to dinner. I was like, Come on, man. <laughs> and then, uh, but after a while, I was like, "Wait a minute, 
my voice came back and it was right. So he came back. So how are you feeling? I said, oh, I feel good. Okay, let's do the vocal. You know? So he was really good, like a coach like that. And uh, and I remember us doing that four-part harmonies for for uh, Bo- the Boiler song, the Boiler, me, Boiler and me, because he, he loved Razzle and his, and his Cockney accent. He, was, <laughs> he wanted to have that on the record and had Razzle speak on uh, uh, Cutting Corners and in, in uh, Don't You Believe Me too. But then had the Boiler song. Uh, we had the four-part harmony. And uh, when we're doing uh, all four of us around the mics doing the vocal and Vessel was standing there with a beer, Bob storms into the room with a fire extinguisher goes, shh, shh, with, with, the, with the foam uh, strain on everybody. Everybody else, jump, else jumped up. We all were like, what? <laughs> Vessel just kept standing there. Was, Hello, Bobo. How you doing? <laughs> What's up with the foam? It's like all covered in foam. He didn't move a bit. It was just like, how you doing, Bobo? <laughs> Bob was really, he was whipping Russell because Russell hadn't, wasn't used to working so hard, but uh, he, he got everything out of Russell that he needed. And, and in the end, Russell was, was fine. It was, it was great. It was a great job. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Love hearing these sorts of stories. I mean, can I just touch on the fact that we, we mentioned that you guys were pioneers and, and you said it was difficult to label you as, as punk, as metal, as, and they invented glam and this, that, and the other. I mean, you guys... I've always been known as one of the most influential groups of your era, in, in effect. I mean, you get cited by the likes of um, the Foo Fighters and Skid Row and the Manic Street Preachers and, and Guns N' Roses have all come out and openly said that you guys have been influences to them. And then you've got the Headbangers Ball documentary cited you as one of the most influential bands. And then LA Weekly came out with their list of the top hair metal bands. And I think that was only 2013. And they had you guys at number one. I mean, how does it feel to hear that kind of thing? But at the same time, you never managed to get that critical kind of commercial success in the US when you really should have done given the, the fact that you guys are so influential and your music is such loved yeah it's always always great to get any kind of recognition it's it's, it's really cool especially when it's uh, the right kind of recognition and people who understand what the band was about I think uh, with Hanoi Rocks the, the record sales never reflected our, yeah. our our fame and our you know uh, it never never translated into record sales or or money or, or uh, that kind of monetary uh, success so but i i think uh what we achieved was uh it, it's harder to achieve and and more uh, i'd rather have the integrity that we have than have commercial success that would you know that anybody can have pretty much uh you're lucky enough you know uh so we we had something more meaningful yeah and that that to me that means a lot more to me than uh, so that that's why I'm not I'm not sorry I never became a millionaire you know <laughs> so that money doesn't really get you happiness anyway so we had we did made did something of a lasting value and yeah. that's that's more important than that uh, and that I feel kind of proud of you know in, in my own career that I never compromised for the wrong reasons and that's the reason I broke up Hanoi Rocks when after Russell died because I didn't want it to become something that it wasn't in the parody of itself or uh, and i thought at least one band should stick to their guns and not not sell out and not do it for the money you know so therefore i think uh, and i think that's why uh, there's a, a lot of respect for hanoi and, and myself in, in the industry by yep. even the big names because uh, i've always you know walked my own path and uh, uncompromisingly and uh, never sold out never sold my soul and i stay true to myself and uh, yep you know kept doing this from the heart and uh then sticking it out for all the, <laughs> throughout the years and uh like like little steven uh said something cool in his interview that uh pete pete told me in, his, in the documentary interview he said like you know uh it's it's okay to have a hit and stuff like that but you know try and stick it stick it out for for 40 years and uh, without a hit, then that's something. To, that's something to, that takes some doing, and that's what Michael has done. <laughs> brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now we've mentioned what happened with Razzle, and then after Hanoi, um, you then had uh, an ill-fated project, shall we say, with Jerusalem Slim, and you, you labelled that once the, probably the worst part of your career. But then following that, we had Demolition Twenty Three, which I heard you again say in another interview was probably one of the best times of your career, especially in the recording studio because it came together so nicely. Everything fell into place it came together quickly which was a stark contrast to what had happened with steve stevens now demolition 23 it's a little known project and he kind of got a a small release in in effect at the time but thankfully we're getting the full release now aren't we yeah exactly i mean that was uh, everything that went went wrong with the jerusalem slim steve stevens project uh, we did right with demolition 23 
and having little Steven as the producer, although I, I had I didn't have a big record deal with, which I had with not, not faking it and and Jerusalem Slim, I uh, I had to get dropped off the label because I owed them a huge amount of money and I was didn't make sense staying there. It took about a year. When I was finally dropped by the label, I was free to do and to use little Steven as the producer, which Polygram didn't let me use for Steven's mm-hmm. project, which would have saved that problem. So uh, Stephen had now finally I, I called Stephen. Hey, I'm free, and you know to do it. now we can make the record that I always wanted. And having him as the producer, it was easy. I, I could trust him completely. And uh, uh, having the band after we got the band together with Sammy Alpha and uh, Jay Henning and Jimmy Clark, it was uh, it didn't take more than it was three days of recording the basic tracks and two wow. days of vocals. So and that was then we mixed it song per day and. Uh, that was it. And in about two weeks, the whole album was done. And it's still one of the best albums I've done. Uh, I think uh, Not Faking It and Demolition 23 are my favorite albums from the past. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and now it's been, uh, all these years I've been talking to Steven about, it has to, we have to release it because it only came out on, we didn't have a big label. Uh, it came out on Music for Nations uh, in, in Europe and uh, on uh, Mercury Records in, in Japan. And it was, it was big in Japan. And we toured there and stuff, but uh, never came out in the States. And uh, Stephen, at the time, he went shopping at the record labels. He took the album to uh, the big labels and they said, oh, punk is dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> even though it was more than punk, it was authentic and yeah. good rock, rock music and, and with the punky edge. And so uh, nobody uh, was interested at the time. And this was uh, maybe a half a year, a year later, uh, all this Green Day stuff came out and uh, then it became a big big thing so once again i was ahead of my time <laughs> you know right place at the wrong time or whatever you know same with hanoi kind of you know in the states yeah, yeah. so uh it was um it was just a, a shame because it was a great great record and a great band and uh, what happened with uh jay henning i mean he it's a sad sad story he was he was a fantastic guitar player he would have been a superstar and and uh he was just fantastic and unfortunately, he had some problems. Well, he had his—he broke his leg. Uh, he's hit by a car, and uh, took a half a year before we could go. And we waited for a half a year for him to recover. And then a couple of weeks before the first tour, uh, we were going to go to England and then play in a London the Astoria show, and then uh, Finland and Japan. He uh, got arrested in Alphabet City. He was scoring because he had a bit of a habit, and um, which he was struggling with and trying to trying to get rid of him. So I had to get nasty suicide to replace him at the last minute, and we had like one rehearsal, and then we hit the stage with Astoria. And uh, me and Sammy and Nasty had uh, not played since Hanoi had broken up, so that was the first time three of us were together again. And it was a great show. Uh, yeah, it was. It went well, and then we went to Japan and uh, out to Finland and then Japan. At the Finnish press conference, Nasty said that he wants to join the band permanently. I says, "Well, okay, great." I didn't. I wasn't going to say no because you know we didn't have a guitar player then. So, uh, but then in 1995, Nasty decided to stop playing rock and roll altogether, and he he went to study to be a pharmacist. Yeah. He is now, and uh, so uh, we came back to New York, and I I was disappointed, disillusioned, and I feel felt like you know couldn't find another guitar player, and uh, the music business was what it was. The music had no business in the music business. I was just like fed up with the whole thing, and. Uh, that's when I decided to move out of New York. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of this this re-release then that we're getting now for Demolition 23, I mean, we've had um, a sneak peek, one of the singles, again, another London connection, Hammersmith Palais. Um, yeah. what, what are we going to get from this re-release then? Is it is it all mastered um, versions of the songs? Are we getting any bonus extra tracks? I mean, yeah. is it coming out in special vinyl? Give, give yes. us a lowdown on it all. All of those, all it's, and it, above. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, it's been remastered. I was there, and it's really it sounds much better than before. Even it's kicking ass more. It's got more drums, more balls, and uh, it's got three bonus tracks. There were three demos we made. Uh, we recorded at the uh, Baby Monster Studios on 14th Street. That uh, uh, were uh, Hammersmith Palais and uh, um, Dysfunctional and uh, The Scum Lives On. Those three songs, and uh, I had them on an audio cassette, and uh, I didn't digitalize there. Some years ago, I got them in the digital form, and uh, yeah. so uh, that was the only one, in, only tape in existence. Wow. So luckily, I saved uh, all the stuff uh, over the years and kept it myself. So uh, three, three bonus tracks, the demos that we made before we went to the studio, and uh, it's, it never came out on vinyl, so it's got a 
vinyl coming out of vinyl with a cover uh, gatefold cover that uh, rich jones who was being doing making my past four albums uh is uh, uh we, i could i dug out some old photos and stuff and we made a nice package together there's a poster right. and uh and the bonus tracks are available on this on this card thing and on the cd the bonus tracks are on the cd cd comes out also with a new booklet uh, with some liner notes, I wrote I wrote something about every song, and uh, you know, and then wrote the story about the album and stuff. And uh, it's dedicated to it was originally originally dedicated to Steve Bader's at yeah. the time, so now it's also dedicated to the memory of Jay Henning's memory because he took his own life in '97. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> that's also that. And uh, bedtime stories, the last song I wrote for Steve, and uh, uh, kind of with him after he passed away. And it's got 11 Steve Bader songs from all throughout his career within the lyrics. And uh, I even played that one at my uh, birthday concert acoustically. Uh, Fantastic. Quite proud of that too. And that the album just came together perfectly. So now it's great. I've been talking to Stephen for years and years. It was like 20 years now. We've <laughs> got to get this album out. It's got to be available. <laughs> it's out of print and nobody has it. Nobody knows it. And now finally about a year ago or, or so, Stephen said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, so, all right. And, uh, I went into master it and uh, we did work on the cover and it's uh, it's a nice package. It's really really coming out nicely and having uh, Demolition Twenty Three be the support band at my sixtieth birthday <laughs> concert. We did you know five songs. Nothing's all right. Dysfunctional and endangered species and you crucified me in Hammersmith Palais. Sounds fantastic. And you mentioned um, in terms of the, the remastering that it's an our Kickass album. It's a big ballsy record, and that leads us on to to your recent release. I mean, that is a Kickass record. That is a big ballsy record. It came out just uh, earlier this this year, didn't it? A couple of months ago, as we said, yeah. it's "I Live Too Fast to Die Young," um, which is the name of one of the tracks as well. Now let's start off with that. It's a fantastic name. Where did that name come from? Well, that was the, the song, when the song came about, we, we had like 34 songs last summer. I narrowed it down to 11 in the end, and uh, it was a good problem to have. But when that song came about, I thought that's the name of the that's album. That's the one, yeah. It's this time in my, you know, I'm 60. I just turned 60 in June, and uh, the album came out on June 10th, and uh, so we were touring with Alice Cooper, and, uh, and I felt better than ever. I thought, you know, I can't die young anymore. And uh, it's, uh, we, we, have, uh, we tend to reinvent old cliches like live fast die young is a boring old cliche and it's nothing cool about dying young so uh live too fast to die young was a perfect title for for my record and uh and then uh it, as we were making it uh, i was uh, with the, the track listing I, I thought of you know the first song is murder the summer of murder yep. the summer of love and the second to last song is i live too fast to die young and the last song dearly departed so it was just like this death theme that appeared uh in a, in a positive way i thought oh that's a sign that this is the track listing that and all this it went perfectly together and we went into a new studio that i had never been to before uh, in helsinki it's a place called inkfish and I had this guy erno lighting and it was um engineer uh who actually became more than an engineer in the process i, I marked uh, him down with the band as the producers because uh, he had a lot of great vision and a lot of great ideas. And uh, it really has a, we renewed the band's sound in the best possible way, in, in sound-wise, production-wise, arrangement-wise, song-wise. There's a lot of dynamics and, and, and a good, as an entirety, it really felt perfectly into place. So um, I'm quite happy. I think it's exceptional. One of the best ones uh, I've done, I think, uh, in my career I'm uh, definitely I mean honestly I mean, don't don't blush here but I'm going to read out a couple of little things here that I've found on reviews I mean the yeah. record has gone down a storm Music Wave said Michael Monroe succeeds with I Live Too Fast to Die Young to release one of the best opus of his talented career Louder Sound said Michael Monroe continues to be the living embodiment of the rock and roll dream Rock Pit says it's an album of wonderful variety and Sleaze Rock says for those familiar with the crown prince of cool I Live Too Fast to Die Young will be of little surprise as Michael sounds absolutely stunning the reviews have been fantastic it does sound fantastic i mean you must be so pleased with the way it's come out and the recognition it's been getting yeah that was fantastic wow i wish i had those uh, have those uh, reviews that's great thank you so much that's nice to hear that really means it means uh, the world to me that's great to hear and yeah I've, I've read other great reviews it's really been received well and people think it's one of the best records i've done i, I yeah. agree i must say yeah. it really turned out perfect it's fantastic. And then we've got to mention Slash as well. I mean, he's been a good friend of yours for a very long time. And he, and he, you got him on the record too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. He plays a solo on uh, the, uh, the title track, I Live Too Fast to Die Young. 
And we're actually making, I mean, the, the videos came out for uh, uh, the, the cast are falling apart and, and uh, everything, everybody's nobody. Yeah. And there's a, a lyric video for Murder the Summer of Love. But we're also making, we just filmed a, a two new videos, one for Derelict Palace, which uh, is one of my favorites too. It's very loads yeah. of new, which kind of vibe to it. And, uh, and the title track, uh, which Slash is going to be featured on as well, uh, the Pastor oh, Diane, that's going to be coming up after Eric Palace. So we're still, you know, put, coming up with videos for this. This is too good a record to, to let it, let it, you know, go by. Yes. We're still, uh, those songs are coming out on the video and we're going to keep, keep touring on it still. And uh, yeah, Slash was so sweet. I mean, he, he was really busy. He was, and uh, he was, uh, he asked me, when do you need to, I said, well, I'd like to play a solo on the song. It's, it's going to be the title track of my new album. And it's like, well, he's really busy. Uh, he's got a new album coming out. He's got tons of press to do. When do you need it by as well? Now. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you can't, uh, I understand. And it was uh, within two days we had the solo. So wow. Like, God bless you. He's a sweetheart. He's the sweetest guy I know. He's really uh, wonderful. Fantastic. So how did all that come about? Because obviously you were on the Use Your Illusion album. You were over there. I mean, how did the, the link up with the Guns N' Roses originally start then? Well, it started with uh, Axl Rose uh, walking into my uh, video uh, shoot uh, of uh, Dead Yellow Rock and Roll in, in 89 in New York. He was just happened to be walking by and uh, I'm sure it was a higher guidance. Uh, it, was, it was meant to be there. He... He asked uh, some people what's going on, and somebody said it's Michael Monroe filming a video. So he came to introduce himself, and uh, then we we got along so well that uh, he ended up on uh, doing a cameo on the video, and uh, yeah. and then then we we became friends, and then he they they flew me over to L.A. to to jam on some. Uh, they for example there was a magazine called Rit Magazine. They had a party, and uh, they they had me come up to play harp on like uh, we did the Heartbreak Hotel. And that's where I met Alice Cooper for the first time too. <laughs> party and and uh, so we became friends. And uh, whenever they came to New York, we would hang out. And, you know, and one night, me and had, uh, we were out having dinner with uh, Axel and Slash and their management. And, uh, me and Slash ended up uh, coming to my apartment uh, later at night. And the management were really nervous. They said, "Oh, Michael Monroe, you know my reputation." They thought, "Oh, this is bad news. Slash is going to go off with Michael into the night in New York. What's going to happen?" Then I end up, uh, you know, no one's going to hear of them for a month. But uh, we, we, we were cool. You know, we had a good time hanging out of my, my flat. And uh, whenever Axel came to New York, he would always call and uh, we got to dinner. And he was always really a nice gentleman. And we had great conversations, really deep conversations with spiritual stuff. And probably stuff that the, the regular L.A. people wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In L.A. were more like about chicks and yeah. kind of more superficial. So when we met, we had nice, nice conversations over dinner and really deep, uh, you know. He had his tarot cards done for the first time when we were at the restaurant called Nirvana. It was an Indian restaurant on Central Park South, which uh, had like, it was, you went, took an elevator to a penthouse and it was a view of the park. And uh, my favorite, apparently it was Robert Plant's favorite uh, Indian in in New York too. So uh, there was, uh, they had live music, some, uh, you know, sitar and tabla players there every, every Saturday. And then it was a tarot card reader. So, uh, so you think I should have my card set? I said, yeah, go for it. And that this woman uh, do his cards, and uh, he was, he's, he liked. He thought it was helpful. It was good, and we had some really really cool conversations. Uh, there was one where he said they had a video. Oh, he was on stage uh, at a show once, and uh, he felt somebody push him from behind, where he like he flew ahead, and I was like, whoa! But it, it, it he didn't see anybody there, and they watched the video, and they see him like fly forward, but there was nobody there. So, I mean, he had some serious demons, you know, mm. chasing them. I was like, wow, that's heavy, man. Okay. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> really cool, smart, and, and uh, uh, smart guy and uh, really polite and always always friendly to me. I mean, I, I, I don't care what, uh, what they say. I've heard about <laughs> the stories. I, I, I love the guy. I think it's great. And I think he's doing a great job now with uh, opening up for them in, in London, you know, he was, yes. I thought he was singing great. And, uh, you know, I, I know they canceled a gig in Glasgow after it because uh, some uh, voice problems. But to me, it was, it was great, you know, really good. And uh, I'm so glad that they're still touring and mm-hmm. they're a real band, you know, and they're great. Yeah, yeah. 
Brilliant. And then you said that you, you supported them and then you've mentioned Alice a few times as well. You're a big fan of his early albums and you're yeah. a friend of his. You, you've toured with him again this summer across Europe, that sort of thing. I mean, yeah. what, what's Alice like to hang out with? I mean, what was oh, he like? Wonderful. He's so sweet. You'll be surprised. He was like the sweetest guy you'll ever meet. He's just like so polite, so kind. And then before, and the first time I, I was at that Rip Magazine party and the first time we met, he was, I knew Alice, Alice was there and there was a bunch of people there and I was like looking around and then somebody pulled my sleeve and said, hey, Mike. Oh, Alice! Wow! Hey, so come on, sit down. And he says, "Hey, first, first of all, you thank me for speaking so highly of these these records because I I'd mentioned that Billion Dollar Babies or Love It to Death, are my favorite records of all time, some of the best records that I made." And he was like, "Thank you for speaking so highly of my records." And he oh, wow. says, "Shall we take some photos then?" You know, before you even get to ask him. And, and uh, he was so lovely. I mean, this summer. Opening for him those those shows uh, in in Europe uh, it was so great. It was the best times uh, since the Motorhead tour. That's the best tour I've been on. Uh, uh, the, the Alice shows because they were so the whole crew and the band and everybody they're so sweet and so accommodating and kind. And Alice was on my birthday, like the best birthday ever. Oh. I was uh, seventeen. It was actually June seventeenth when I turned sixty, and we were opening for Alice in Zwickau in, in Germany. Uh, so Alex knew it was my birthday. So he, uh, he, and, and other nights too, he invited me to, up to sing uh, the second verse of "Schools Out." And, uh, the, oh wow! Out. So this time he uh, invited me up, and he, <laughs> he knew it was my birthday. He, you know, he has those balloons uh, that have like confetti inside, and he pops them with his sword. So he gave me my own sword. So I <laughs> always would pop those balloons. I like, wow, this is a dangerous combination. Me with a sword. <laughs> but uh, then, uh, then he. Uh, uh, at the end of school's out, he uh, had a, a cake brought up for me. Oh. Birthday cake with uh, this guy, uh, Kyler, who's his, his assistant. Who's, he's dressed like a, like the, the uh, Hunchback in Notre Dame. You know, <laughs> he comes up with me a cake and Alice sang, sang happy birthday to me with the audience. And I was like, wow, that was the best birthday ever. I was like, whoa, he's so kind-hearted. Such a, such a nice guy. And, and his wife, uh, Sh- uh, Cheryl, is uh, amazing too. And they're, they're both they're the coolest couple ever. I mean, uh, they, me and Cheryl, Cheryl, Cheryl is a dancer, you know, in the show as yeah, well. Yeah. He, uh, she, she does the splits. We always do like, okay, you still do the splits? Okay, let's do it. We always update our splits photo. We're doing the splits. <laughs> and, and she, it's amazing at her age too. It's like, she's, they're forever young. I mean, you can't, can't tell what age they are, but they're ageless. They're like totally amazing people. I love them. I love them dearly. That these knives, uh, oh. this one has, it's what Alice uses. This guy is his autograph on it too, but uh, he has a dartboard in the back backstage, and he's like, "Are you throwing darts?" No, oh, no, target practice. <laughs> like, I'll teach you too. He says, and at the end of a end of a tour, he had um, uh, he came up to me and says, "Now, Michael, I've only given this to about five people. As uh, Bernie Taupin was one, and uh, one was uh, Nick Cave, and this." Stiletto. Oh wow! So this I was like, "Wow, Alex Cooper," and you know, with the pearl handle and everything I was wow this is so cool the stiletto from Alice Cooper so I posted a picture with this on the Facebook and some some somebody of course said so I said I got this cool stiletto uh, I mean uh, yeah I got this cool switchblade from Alice Cooper and so somebody said of course somebody commented what's cool about switchblade violent <laughs> if Alice Cooper gives you a switchblade it's <laughs> cool okay <laughs> I'm Actually, we use this. It's probably going to end up in the Derelict Palace video when there's that part where it says, this Hall of Mirrors leaves me crap. <laughs> you know, had this on the video. So uh, he's the greatest and uh, I hope we get to do more shows with him. I hope you do too. It sounds phenomenal. I could sit and speak to you today all night, honestly. It's fantastic, Michael. But um, we've gone through your new movie that's coming up, Demolition 23, the, the newly remastered version of Oriental Beat. You've got a new album out as well, I, I Live Too Fast to Die Young. Is there yeah. anything else on the horizon? Are you working on anything else that fans can look forward to? Uh, keep going. Uh, keep doing my shows and playing live. I mean, we're supposed to play a tour in the UK in February. It all goes well, all goes well. and uh, just keep doing my thing and try to get better at it. Uh, there's always room for improvement, so that keeps me hungry. And I, I keep, you know, doing my thing and uh, stay true to myself and honest uh, uh, from the heart. And 
yeah, I just I'll just keep on keeping on, and uh, all these right. cool things are happening. So this is I, I'd say this is the best time of my life. Uh, people ask what's your highlight of your career back in the eighties or something. No, this is the best time of our life. One of the highlights was having Alice Cooper sing Happy Birthday to me at the, the live show with the German in Germany with the whole audience, and having uh, you know the best band I could hope for, and uh, and. Very happy. Uh, I have a wonderful wife for 18 years now, and two two lovely cats. And uh, I love my home. And uh, you know, what more can you ask for? I'm, I'm quite happy to be. Life is good, and I'm so glad to hear that life is good for you, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I've been a fan since I was a teenager, so this has been a brilliant experience for me as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. It was really a great great experience talking to you too. Thank you. The brilliant Michael Munro there. Such a nice guy. I could have chatted with him all night. Please do check out his latest album, I Live Too Fast to Die Young. It's hard and balls to the wall. Some great songs on there as well. And check out Demolition 23 when it hits. And honestly, I'm so looking forward to the release of the documentary too. Fingers crossed he gets over to the UK to perform in February and I will be there for sure. But that's it for today's show then. I really do hope you enjoyed that interview. He was brilliant, wasn't he? Check out Hanai Rock, such a criminally underexposed band. Go give their albums a listen. Check out the live performances on YouTube as well. Go and do it now. One heck of a live band they were. Remember as well, if you're not listening to this on the Vintage Rock Pod feed, then please do search for it on your podcast app. Follow, subscribe, whatever it is, to the Vintage Rock Pod channel so you don't miss any of the episodes because one is released every single day. It's everything for the classic rock fan. Check out the Vintage Rock Pod feed and see us on YouTube as well. Vintage Rock Pod with all the videos. You'll see some of the Michael Monroe videos that have been going up lately as well. But that is it for this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening and checking out the programme. I'll be back tomorrow with another of This Day Rocks. So, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.